Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 6th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fulce, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. This was defense attorney Kimberly Allison Hansen's third California State Bar discipline proceeding. It arises from her representation of two defendants before the WCAB. The WCAB imposed sanctions against her and three other attorneys from her law firm after concluding that they had intentionally misled the board, causing it to take unwarranted action. According to the 23-page State Bar Opinion, she worked as a vice president at the law firm of Stockwell, Harris, Wolverton, and Mule at the time and was an experienced workers' compensation attorney. Applicant Lewis Spite, an employee of Vulcan Materials Company, submitted a workers' compensation claim for work-related injuries. During the course of litigating his case, it took defense attorneys three attempts to obtain a QME panel. The medical unit denied the first QME request due to a lack of all necessary information. At the time, the medical unit also informed attorney Hansen that her first QME request had been filed prematurely. Hansen was directed to resubmit her request. The medical unit notified Hansen it was rejecting her second request because it also lacked all necessary information. One week later, Hansen submitted her third QME panel request to the medical unit. Between the second and third QME request, the spiked WCAB case was set for conference. The War Comp judge overruled the defense objections to proceeding and went ahead and set the matter for trial. But a defense petition for removal was granted on the issue of ordering the QME panel. However, defense attorneys failed to disclose to the WCAB that the medical unit had timely advised attorney Hansen that the first and second QME requests were deficient. And three weeks after the petition for removal was filed and before the WCAB ruled on it, the medical unit issued a QME panel in response to Hansen's third request. The WCAB then granted the petition for removal on the grounds that the ALJ should have ordered the matter off calendar to allow the defendant to obtain a QME panel. But Hansen did not notify the board that a QME panel had already been assigned three months earlier. And she again remained silent when the WCAB issued a second order rescinding the ALJ's trial setting order and directing the medical unit's medical director to issue a QME panel. Three weeks later, the WCAB learned of the true state of affairs when the medical director disclosed that the medical unit had timely responded to Hansen and that the third QME request had been granted and a panel had been issued. The WCAB did not take lightly to the fact that its orders to the ALJ to vacate the trial setting order and to the medical unit to issue a QME panel were based on what it called a distorted version of the record. The WCAB concluded its hotly contested sanction hearing by saying the problem was not that the attorneys zealously represented their client. 
it was that they did so by misleading the WCAB, by concealing material facts, and by supporting their position with half-truths. As a consequence of the WCAB's sanction actions, the Office of the Chief Trial Counsel of the California State Bar initiated disciplinary proceedings against Hansen and her colleague Kevin White, an associate with the Stockwell firm, who attended the mandatory settlement conference. The hearing judge in the disciplinary matter determined that Hansen's participation in the workers' compensation case involved acts of dishonesty constituting moral turpitude. She further found three factors in aggravation, which were two prior records of discipline, significant harm and lack of insight, and two factors in mitigation, which were cooperation and good character. Both Hansen and the Office of the Chief Trial Counsel of the State Bar appealed the decision but the decision of the hearing judge was sustained. Hansen was disciplined with an 18-month actual suspension from the practice of law. And now our crime report. The new Department of Justice guidelines issued on September 9, 2015 and referred to informally as the Yates Memo specified several changes to Department of Justice policy. The new policy seeks to hold corporate officers responsible for acts of their corporate employers. And it seems that the Yates memo has found a new target. A former senior executive of Tenet Healthcare Corporation has been indicted on charges that he participated in a scheme to pay bribes for patient referrals, enabling the hospital chain to fraudulently bill state Medicaid programs for $400 million. John Holland, a former senior vice president, was charged in an indictment filed in federal court with four counts of mail fraud, health care fraud, and major fraud against the United States. The charges came after the Dallas-based tenant and two of its Atlanta area units reached a settlement with the Justice Department and agreed to pay more than $513 million to resolve criminal charges and civil claims in a related case. A Department of Justice spokesperson said that these charges underscored the DOJ continued commitment to holding both individuals and corporations accountable for their fraudulent conduct. Prosecutors said Holland was the chief executive of tenant-owned North Fulton Medical Center in Roswell, Georgia, and served as Senior Vice President of Operations for Tenet's Southern States region. The indictment said that Holland and others engaged in a scheme to pay more than $12 million in bribes and other illegal inducements to the owners and operators of a firm that operated clinics in Georgia and South Carolina. In exchange, the clinics referred patients to tenant hospitals and arranged for services to be provided to patients and their newborns at tenant hospitals. Prosecutors said Holland sought to conceal the scheme by circumventing internal accounting controls and falsifying records. The scheme allegedly enabled tenant hospitals to bill fraudulently more than $400 million. 
A Stanislaus Union School District employee has been convicted of workers' compensation insurance fraud. John Heaton was employed as a campus monitor for the district, and he reported an on-the-job injury in 2015. Heaton filed a workers' compensation claim and, as a result, received medical treatment and other workers' comp benefits. But a subsequent investigation discovered that Heaton presented false statements and material misrepresentations during a meeting with the school district's return-to-work specialist. Heaton misrepresented facts as it related to his physical abilities and limitations associated with his injury. In January 2017, Heaton pleaded no contest to insurance fraud, a felony, because he unlawfully and knowingly made a false and fraudulent material statement in support of obtaining work comp benefits. He was sentenced to 30 days in jail, three years formal probation, in order to pay more than $8,000 in restitution. This case was a joint investigation by Probe Information Services, the California Department of Insurance Fraud Division, and the Amador County District Attorney's Workers' Compensation Fraud Unit. This fraud unit investigates insurance fraud cases in Amador, Stanislaus, and Calveras counties through a grant provided by the California Department of Insurance. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has posted the 2016 DWC Audit and Enforcement Unit Annual Report on its website. The annual report provides information on how claims administrators audited by the DWC performed and includes the Administrator Director's Ranking Report for audits conducted in calendar year 2015. The annual report provides the name and location of each insurer, self-insured employer, and third-party administrator audited during that time. The Audit and Enforcement Unit found and cited 5,255 violations against claims administrators with administrative penalties totaling nearly $1.5 million. But not all administrative penalties are subject to collection. Under the Labor Code, no penalties are assessed on those cited violations unless the audit subject fails the audit at a specified level. Performance is rated in accordance with the performance standards set annually. This year, the DWC Audit and Enforcement Unit completed a total of 43 profile audit reviews and audited 2,729 claim files. 35 audit subjects, that's 81%, met or exceeded the performance standard and therefore had no penalty citations assessed. Congratulations to all who passed the audit. The following were the top 10 who easily exceeded the PAR standard set for the year. They were, number one, Schools Insurance Authority in Sacramento. Number two, Keenan & Associates in Pleasanton. Number three, Warner Brothers Studio Facilities in Burbank. Then RICA and RICC in Encino. Followed by Zenith Insurance Company in San Diego. Then TriStar Risk Management in Fresno. Number seven was U.S. Concrete in San Jose. Number eight, Intercare Holding Insurance Services Incorporated in Orange. 
number nine, Solar Turbines Incorporated in San Diego, and coming in at number 10 was Tokyo Marine and Nichido Fire Insurance Company in Pasadena. At the other end of the list, eight audit subjects, that's 19%, failed to meet or exceed the PAR standard, and their audits expanded into a full compliance audit of indemnity claims. Six of the eight audit subjects failed to meet or exceed the full compliance audit 2015 performance standard. These audit subjects were assessed administrative penalties for all citations. The Division of Workers' Compensation will administer the next Qualified Medical Evaluator's Competency Examination on Saturday, April 29, 2017. Physicians who wish to take the exam on that date must submit a completed original application for appointment as Qualified Medical Evaluator on QME Form 100. They must send all documentation and fees required and also complete the registration for the QME competency examination, which is QME Form 102. The application and all required documentation must be reviewed and approved by the DWC before a physician can be registered for the exam. The application must be postmarked by March 16, 2017 in order to qualify. Qualified registrants will receive a confirmation letter along with a candidate information booklet by email or mail. All physicians are required to pay a non-refundable, non-rollover $125 fee to sit for any upcoming QME exam. Before appointment as a QME, the physician shall also complete a 12-hour course in disability evaluation report writing approved by the administrative director. The DWC will assess the annual QME fee after the candidate has successfully passed the QME competency exam in order to activate the QME status. The primary purpose of this examination is to demonstrate the competence of a physician in evaluating medical issues in the workers' compensation system and to evaluate competency with respect to current California workers' compensation system terminology laws, rules, regulations, and medical legal procedures. The examination is designed to ensure that there is a commonly understood body of knowledge and common language for QMEs, which will increase the probability of rateable and impartial medical legal evaluations of injured workers in California. For additional information regarding the qualifications to become a QME, please visit the DWC website. The Division of Workers' Compensation has posted an order adjusting the durable medical equipment, prosthetics, orthotics, and supplies, known as the DMEPOS section of the official medical fee schedule, to conform to changes in the Medicare payment system. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services initially released the DMEPOS fee schedule 2017 ZIP file update in December of 2016, but subsequently CMS issued a revised DME POSV schedule for 2017 in order to implement changes required by the 21st Century Cures Act. The Act Administrative Director, 
the acting administrator director has adopted the revised DME POS fee schedule zip file for services rendered on or after February 1, 2017. The update order is effective for services rendered on or after February 1 and can be found at the DWC's website OMFS page. And in medical news, in one of the last acts of 2016, President Obama signed into law the largest piece of health care legislation since the Affordable Care Act. The law, known as the 21st Century Cures Act, has the potential to invigorate medical research, promote innovation, and speed the development and FDA approval of new treatments. It also has the potential for increasing the risk of taking medications, including death. Not long ago, the risks were put into perspective in a controversial article in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It published a landmark review by Dr. Barbara Starfield of the John Hopkins School of Public Health under the title, Is U.S. Health Really the Best in the World? Dr. Starfield revealed what many people inside the medical establishment already knew. Every year, like clockwork, the medical system was killing huge numbers of people. Each year in the U.S., there are 12,000 deaths from unnecessary surgeries, 7,000 deaths from medication errors in hospitals, 20,000 deaths from other errors in hospitals, 80,000 deaths from infections acquired in hospitals, and most importantly, 106,000 deaths from FDA-approved, correctly prescribed medicines. Thus, the total of medically caused deaths in the U.S. every year is conservatively estimated at 225,000 deaths. This makes the medical system the third leading cause of death in America behind heart disease and cancer. In the wake of Dr. Starfield's devastating report, other facts came to light. 2.1 million people in America every year are hospitalized as a result of reactions to FDA-approved medicines. Annually, 36 million serious adverse reactions to those drugs occur. Since the FDA approves every medical drug given to the American people and certifies it is safe and effective, how can that agency remain calm about the fact that these medicines are causing 106,000 deaths per year? Perhaps the public and claims administrators should approach the use of newly expedited FDA-approved medications with an abundance of caution. President Trump told a group of drug company executives gathered for a meeting at the White House that they need to get prices down. President Trump has been a critic of high drug prices and has endorsed measures like allowing Medicare to negotiate prices. But the president also called for reducing regulations to allow for faster approvals of new drugs and to allow drug companies to bring jobs back to the U.S. Trump called current drug prices astronomical. Still, he also offered to make the Food and Drug Administration's approval of new drugs much faster. Executives from Merck, Johnson & Johnson, Celine, Amgen, Eli Lilly, and the Pharma Trade Group 
joined Trump at the meeting. House Energy and Commerce Chairman Greg Walton was also on hand. The Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, known as Pharma, is the main lobbying group for the drug industry, and they described the White House meeting as positive and productive. But Trump's calls for government action to address drug prices could face resistance in a Republican-controlled Congress that is far less willing to take action on drug prices than he appears to be. At the meeting, President Trump also spoke out against what he called price-fixing in Medicare. Trump said he will oppose anything that makes it harder for smaller, younger companies to take the risk of bringing their product to a vibrantly competitive market. Trump slammed drug companies at a press conference earlier last month, declaring that they are getting away with murder. He said that Big Pharma has a lot of lobbies, a lot of lobbyists, a lot of power, and there's very little bidding on drugs. It is not uncommon for histories in medical records to be inconsistent with the history provided by a claimant in a hearing or in a deposition. Now a small study by researchers explored why symptoms that patients describe to doctors may not always be documented in electronic medical records. They examined paper copies of eye symptom questionnaires completed by patients visiting eye clinics. To test out how well the records matched reality, they compared symptoms that 162 patients checked off on paper-based questionnaires with the information entered in electric charts at eye clinics. The research results were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Ophthalmology. Roughly one-third of the time, data on blurry vision from paper questionnaires did not match the electronic records. Symptom information also did not match for glare 48% of the time and was discordant in 27% of cases for pain and 25% for redness. In theory, but apparently not in practice, the promise of electronic health records is that they can help improve the quality of care and lower costs in part by reducing room for errors. The authors note, that the study is small and only included patients within a single clinic system. Still, the results suggest that electronic health records may not always be reliable tools for clinicians treating patients or for researchers mining data. When patient symptoms are missing from electronic records, it can also prompt clinicians to go in the wrong direction looking for a diagnosis and delay patients getting the care they actually need. Fibromyalgia affects roughly 2 to 8% of the United States population. Although 80 to 90% of people with fibromyalgia are women, men of all ages may also have fibromyalgia. In fact, up to 1.5 million men in the U.S. may currently have fibromyalgia, and many more will experience it in their lifetime. And some of these cases may end up part of a workers' compensation claim. And along with gender, other risk factors for developing fibromyalgia include a personal history of other rheumatic diseases, including lupus, a history of mood or depressive disorders, and a family history of fibromyalgia. 
A man's fibromyalgia symptoms may be very different from the symptoms experienced by a woman. Symptoms of fibromyalgia in men may be as widespread as they are in women, but they are often milder and last for last time. Although they may be milder in men, fibromyalgia symptoms can still range from mild to severe and debilitating. Symptoms will vary from person to person and can include pain and tenderness, fatigue, morning stiffness, irritable bowel syndrome symptoms, brain fog, and depression. In order to be diagnosed with fibromyalgia, men must experience widespread pain for more than three months. And this pain must have no known medical cause. Fibromyalgia symptoms occur in a number of diseases and disorders that doctors will need to rule out. So a doctor may do blood tests and imaging to rule out these other causes. But some doctors may think of fibromyalgia as a woman's condition and not consider fibromyalgia in a man as a viable diagnosis. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.